we've been looking at how we can enhance our Bible study by the way we interpret scriptures in light of other themes and ideas and, and, and narratives within the Bible. A hermeneutical approach, you might call it. And that is uh, where we're going to continue our study today. I've got two goals, sort of three goals. One goal is for us to give purpose and meaning in the midst of the storms of life. The second goal is for us to help value not only where we've been, but where we're headed. So with those three kind of points in our brain as we're going into this, uh, uh, I want to deal with the homework assignment from last week. Now last week's homework assignment was about the biblical themes of exile. And I got to tell you, I am so impressed with the number of you who are doing the homework and emailing me. Uh, those of you who aren't doing the homework and emailing me, that's okay. You're in class that or watching online. That's homework enough. And so God bless you. I'm really glad. But some people are saying, give us an idea of something we can work on during the week to get ready for next week. And those who are have been sending me some great stuff. I handed out a number of A-pluses this week. Uh, I think Greg got an A-plus. Larry Burgess got an A-plus. A number of you, now those of you who I sent, you got an A-plus. You're saying, well, why didn't you single me out? Well, they're sitting right here. Is Dale, oh, Dale, Dale, I gave you an A+, plus. though you almost got it dinged because you wanted me to start out with the Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. And I only bring that up, actually at the time I was applauding him for thinking about it because we are, uh, many of us, in the generation of the Rolling Stones, but I've decided to reassess all of this because Becky and I were at a wedding last night in, in Cape Cod. And um, I looked at Becky as the groomsmen are walking down the aisle to this beautiful string quartet that's been playing all these things. And, and I said to Becky, are they in fact playing Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones? I've never heard anybody walk down to that before. But he, the, the couple left to Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater. So I guess they improved. Um, If you're young enough not to remember Exile on Main Street, which was an album that the Stones did, they recorded it in the south of France, and they were on exile from England because England at the time had a 97% tax bracket for people making like gazillions of dollars like the Stones were. So they kind of did a tax dodge and went to uh, the south of France to make the album and make the money. Um, but, but, so they were in exile in a sense, but those of you who aren't old enough to remember that, you may know Taylor Swift's song, Exile, which was also pointed out to me by Mr. A plus, Dale Hearn. Uh, Taylor Swift's, uh, song with Bonnie Ver uh, is one of, of exile in a relationship. Um, uh, you know, the, the guy and the gal are exiling from each other. It's, uh, like, Every Taylor Swift song that I know, at least, it's a relationship gone bust. Um, pretty much, yeah. Um, so, anyway, I, it, you, you may know it, but, but if you don't know either of those, that's okay, because you probably have a dictionary and can look up exile. Exile is the state or a period of forced absence, or voluntary absence, 
from one's country or one's home. Exile. Now, exile is a solid biblical theme that's interwoven with so many of these other biblical themes. When I was addressing the biblical theme of of the Messiah, uh, uh, one of Larry Burgess's emails to me was, how can you do the Messiah without doing exile? And I said, you're right, uh, but I've already told everybody to do the homework on Messiah. I'll do exile next week. And that's why we're in exile this week. So here are the three ways we're going to approach it today. First, I want to talk to you about the exile. Not just some exile. We're going to talk about the exile. And then after that, we're going to talk about... uh Uh-oh, I've lost my roadmap. We're going to talk about additional passages that deal with the exile. And then the third thing we'll do are points for home. So with that, let's talk about the exile. The exile, you don't have to shout it out, but can you be thinking when the first exile is in Scripture? Garden of Eden. Think about the Garden of Eden for a moment. I mean, God creates man. He places him in this marvelous garden. He's got the rivers. The rivers have got minerals. He's got trees. It says it like this. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. In the east. And there he put the man that he'd formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight. And good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That, for Adam, was home. He could go home. He was home in the garden. Uh, By the way, I'm not sure those are actually his shoes because he was naked. And I don't know if shoes count for being naked or not. You know, shoes, you might think, don't really count. But who knows? I mean, if you got nothing on but shoes, I'd still consider you naked right now. I'm just telling you that, okay? So, but, but I know that that's not his shoes because, uh, I know where that picture came from because I happen to be someone who was working on that picture. Eden, sweet Eden. This was his home. We shouldn't get so wrapped up in the narrative that we fail to realize that was his home. Where are you from? Eden. My home. And, and it was a good home. I mean, it was loaded with pets. He gave names to all the animals. And he had family. But Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled against God, and became impure. And sin, God drives sin away from his purity. Oil and water. You can't be pure and, and frolic with sin. So the pure God drives the sin out of the garden. With sin came exile. Genesis 3 put it this way. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He not only drove him out of the garden, he set up angels to stop him from living forever in that condition of fallenness and sin. Because sinful Adam doesn't live forever. Sin not only is driven from the presence of God, sin is destroyed ultimately. Now I talked about this in reference to certain storylines that run throughout scripture. And if you were here for the Messiah storyline, I used this slide last week where I talked about Genesis and the need for the Messiah and the promise of the Messiah that was given on that time day when Adam gets the curses, Adam and Eve. But I talked about the consummation at the end of time where God restores humanity to himself. And that unfolding story of how we get from exiled in the garden to fellowship with God is the story of the Messiah. But it's a story that's rooted in exile. It's rooted in the idea, you know, if, if we were to take, uh, you know, we, 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 don't, we, we don't make images of God. Um, and we don't put boxes around God. But having said that, let me put a box around God great hesitation. God is a very real and definite being. I had lunch on Friday with a fellow who had a PhD in philosophy. He was a friend of our son's. He's a law student and he was asking me for some advice about legal careers. And uh, he'd gone through our son and said, do you think your dad would visit with me? And I said, uh, I'd be glad to. And I said, you have a PhD in philosophy. What is it in? And he said, epistemology. Now, epistemology is, is basically why we believe, in a sense. Um, and I said, so tell me, where'd you get your PhD? And he told me. I said, what'd you write your dissertation on? And he told me. And, and we started talking, before we talked about law, we started talking about belief and why we believe and what's the basis for believing. And, and the fact that my Christian understanding, which is really a Jewish Christian understanding in the fullness of Judaism, my Christian Jewish understanding is one that provides me a basis for believing for understanding what is real and what's not. And, and, and what is a valid way of processing reality. And so we, we had that dialogue, but, but that's all informed here. And you see, God, if we look at God, God says that he is certain things. And God has a very basic morality. And this is part of my discussion with the gentleman. But there are things that God is. That's his nature. 
That's the essence of God. God is an other's love, an agape love. He's a love for others, I should say, so that's not possessive. An other's love. God is these things. And so if you want to live with God in his kingdom and in his family and in his fellowship, you need to be godly. God cannot take you if you are a sinner. This sin is what God does not do. It's ungodliness. So when Adam and Eve chose to be sinners, they left the holy presence of God. And that's this biblical image we've got. And that's why you can try as hard as you want to be as good as you want. You're never going to be sin free and never work your way back in there in the presence of God. So God's got to do something to come get you. And that's going to involve putting to death sin and bringing a new life. So that's the story. And if you go through biblically and you look at Adam and you look at Noah and you look at Abraham, you look at all of those Old Testament characters of great renown, they're mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, that big chapter on faith where all these people are written up. And then Hebrews 11 says in verse 13 through 16, these all died, Adam died, Noah died, Abraham died. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. There's this yearning inside us that wants to go home. Um, The passage continues. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But they desire a better country. They desire a heavenly home. Yeah, you can go on vacation and miss home. But that's not that big eternal longing in our heart that says there's got to be fellows, there's got to be more to life. And all of us have that stirring within us. That's God stirring within us. Because He did make us for more than just going home to our house here. We're wired for that home in God's presence, but we are on exile. And so there's this ache and yearning within us, and, 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 and we should fan the flame of that. I don't know how many of you remember an old group, second chapter of Acts. All right, 1974, they came out with this album with footnotes. And one of my all-time favorite songs is on this album. 1974. This comes out when I'm 14. Very formative in life. But listen to these lyrics. Listen to this song. Go away. 
incredible harmony, by the way. song this song yeah this song uh in fact that uh, trivia here bob dylan wore that album out when it came out he loved that album just side note anyway when (laughs) with sin comes exile but a longing for that home so as the writer of hebrews said If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he's prepared for them a city. Now, you see, when you start reading these exile verses and understanding the Bible with an exile hermeneutic, these passages start taking on another side of understanding. So look, for example, at this. God's not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. Prepared for them. John 14, 1 through 3. John 14, in my Father's house. Oh, I, oh hold on, hold on. Let's get it from the start. John 14, Jesus is about to be crucified. This is his last sort of sit down with his followers, his disciples, his apostles, I should say. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And my Father's house are many rooms. They're already there. If it weren't so, would I have told you, I go to prepare, peruomai, to prepare a place for you. I go, peruomai, to prepare, prepare as a toimasai, a toimidzo. So it'd be a, no, it'd be a toy, yeah, it'd be a toimasai. Okay, I have to watch it, the Greek teachers out there. It's been a long time for me. Um, but that's the same word that's being used here. Etoi midzo is, is, is the verb to prepare. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, go, let's go back. The writer of Hebrews is saying he has prepared for them a city. And that word prepared is the same word that Jesus says, I go now to prepare. Jesus wasn't saying he's headed to heaven with a celestial hammer, nails, and a saw. He's already said in my father's house are many rooms. The rooms are made. God was ready for us before he made us. Jesus is going, he says, to prepare the place. He's talking about going to clean us up. If you go back to my drawing. God's already got room for you and me. The problem is we went out here and Jesus has to go die for the sin. That's how he prepares a place for us. So he's going to prepare a place for us. When he's going to the cross, that prepares the place for us to go. That's how he's the door. That's how our sin is taken. All of that is wrapped up in this exile theme. He's preparing to get us back. And he did prepare to get us back. So now we can use that aorist in a full historical sense here. He has prepared for them a city. And the city is the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 and 22 goes into great detail. And I've got to be real careful time-wise because we've got a lot to cover. Revelation 21 and 22. John sees this in a vision. I see a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth has passed away. I see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll eliminate the curse. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There won't be mourning, crying, pain. The former things have passed away. And he who's seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. Is that not a tie back to Genesis 1 where he creates out of nothingness everything? I'm going to make everything new. We're going back before the exile. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. 
It is done. He has done it. He has conquered death. That can't be undone. He has borne our sins. That can't be erased. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The Genesis and the Revelation. To the thirsty I'll give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I'll be his God. He'll be my son or daughter. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, and all the right, they're going to burn in the lake of fire a second death. You say, wait a minute. I might be some of those. I've certainly told fibs. I put things before God. That's okay. Because that's the old you that Jesus died for. Those are the sins that have been paid. You're a new creation. You're not taking that with you to live with God eternally in the new heaven and new earth. And I mean, it just, it keeps going on and on and on. They start describing the city that, that comes down from above and it's uh, all of its beauty and all of its fullness. But look, as they describe it, verse 22, there's no temple in the city. There's no place to go find God because his temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. You've got God the Father and God the Son. You don't need a temple to go find God. You are dwelling within his presence. You are back where you belong. And all of that's wrapped up in these passages if we understand them in light of the exile. So that's not just, that's the big exile, but that's not the only exile in the Bible. You're going to find other passages that are built off of this theme. There are stories of banishment and exile found throughout Scripture. Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain kills Abel. And what happens to Cain? He's exiled. He's banished. And we could spend some time just looking at those verses and seeing really notable, meaty things when we understand them in light of that. Jacob and Esau. Jacob tricks Esau. Esau wants to kill him. What does Jacob have to do? He flees. He goes into exile. Fourteen years. You know, Moses kills the, the, the Egyptian. What's he have to do? He has to flee from Pharaoh's uh, wrath. And he goes into exile in Midian. These are all stories of exile. And we could look at each one in great detail. But the one I chose to look at in some detail with you. Because it's just juicy, good Bible study. Is the story of Noah. Noah and the flood, if we interpret it with an exile hermeneutic, if we interpret the story with exile as a frame of reference, we see aspects of the story we might miss otherwise. You know the story. Humanity has become corrupt. God tells Noah, build an ark. Noah's leaving home on the ark. 
leaving home and it will be destroyed. He gets on the ark. And that basic story itself is a story of exile from all the land. But there's more to the story than that if we're reading it carefully with this. So the creation story that we started class with is the exile that permeates the whole of Scripture. The Noah story is one that closely parallels the creation story. Noah, in a very real sense, is a re-creation story after the flood. When I was, um, I think it was second semester Hebrew, we were reading um, the, the we, we read Genesis, a good bit of it. Um, we didn't read a lot of the genealogies, but uh, we read a good bit of Genesis. And it's remarkable how if you learn, you know, Dr. David Capes was talking about Greek class and saying it's good for your brain, it engages your brain. You might have trouble in the older years hanging on to some vocabulary. Um, uh, you know, our brains learn better different things at different times, but it's always good for us to do it. Well, if you were reading Genesis in Hebrew and you were trying to learn Hebrew, you'd learn some vocabulary in the creation story and then you'd start reading Noah and that same vocabulary would just be used over and over and over again because it's, it's a re-creation story. So I thought I would take a, a well-known chart and throw this chart up here and uh, we're going to look at creation and we're going to look at re-creation. And I have to put the hyphen in there or it just reads recreation, which, I mean... When you recreate, that's what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be recreating yourself, you know. But we need to emphasize it. So recreation instead of recreation. Day one, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1-3. Ruach is the Hebrew word for spirit. It's also the Hebrew word for wind. Not unlike Greek pneuma, but the Hebrew ruach is the the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, the wind of God, the breath of God. If you look at post-flood, God made a ruach, a spirit, a wind, blow over the water, and the water subsided. So in both stories, you've got the Spirit of God or the wind of God hovering or blowing over the face of the waters, which is something that happened in day one of creation. Now, in day two of creation, we'll read that God made the expanse and separated the waters. He separated waters that are in the heavens and waters that are uh, under the earth. And, and he puts that and God made the expanse, separated the waters that were under the expanse. So the expanse is the heavens. I, we, I don't have time to get into it. Just understand that they're speaking in the geography the terms that they understood at the time. No, Moses is not teaching meteorology, weather. He's, he's, they think that the waters are up there and the clouds are windows that open up and the water dumps out. So he's trying to explain to them that God separated those waters. That, that was God's work. What's in the sky from what's 
under the land, and they thought land was like floating on water somehow or stuck on pillars on water. But in the recreation story, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. God, again, separates the waters from above and the waters below, just like he did in creation, day two. Day three of creation, what do we read? In day three of creation, God said, let the dry land appear, let the earth sprout vegetation and fruit trees. When you're reading the recreation story, the tops of the mountains are seen, the land starts appearing, and the dove's mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. It's a fruit tree. It was the principal fruit tree for them, the olive tree. And so you've got the earth sprouting fruit trees in, in Genesis 1. You've got the earth sprouting fruit trees in post-Noah flood recreation. That's day three. If we go to day four, in day four of creation, God said, let there be lights to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and days and years. He makes the sun and the moon. In the recreation, the dove comes back in the evening. Then he waits another seven days. You've just got that echo of of days and evening and morning. And you've got the echo of time being reasserted and reestablished as it was on day four. Day five. In creation on day five, the birds fly above the earth and across the expanse. Remember, that's the sky that separates the waters from the waters. Across the expanse of the heavens. In the recreation story, he sends forth a raven and it goes to and fro until the waters were dried up. It's flying back and forth. It is a bird flying above the earth. Then he sends forth the dove and she doesn't return. So you've got birds flying in both places. Day six. In the creation story, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. These are fun Hebrew words to learn. You'll use them again in the recreation story where birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth are to swarm the earth. God has remade the earth. So you've got this recreation, day six. God says to the animals, be fruitful and multiply. Or says to, yeah, uh, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, says to man. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves. What's he tell Noah? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you will be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground. Same thing. In creation, you've got, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth to eat. Every true tree with seed in its fruit. You have them all for food. Recreation. Every moving thing that lives, I'll give you for food. As I gave you the green plants, I'm giving you everything. Those aren't the only parallels. You will find Echoes and echoes and echoes in these stories, even beyond looking at the days of creation. So you'll see in creation that God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female, he created them. And then in the new creation, you have this warning about killing someone. And it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because God made man in his own image. I got an email from Janet this week, I think it was, asking me about 
the image of God and, and, and within Scripture. I think she's writing a paper on it or something. But these are very formative passages that inform us and link up these stories. As Janet pointed out, there aren't a lot of places in Scripture that speak of humanity being made in the image of God. But where it does speak of it, it's extremely important. And that it's so rare, and yet it's here, is a very strong link that we're supposed to pick up on when we read these stories. If you go back to Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden, we already looked at this. The Lord God planted a garden in the east, and he put the man whom he formed. What what does Noah do when he gets out of the flood? Noah plants a garden. He plants a vineyard. You've got these echoes here, but now it starts to get a little bit goofy. Eve eats the fruit. Adam eats the fruit. She ate it. He ate it. And then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Now, Noah has planted a vineyard. He gets drunk. And the scripture says, he drank of the wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered, naked, in his tent. It's kind of an ironic little twist that should alert us. When Adam and Eve, after they sinned, realized they were naked, they were ashamed. Noah gets naked, and he's too drunk to give a rip. So while in creation, Adam and Eve sew together fig leaves and make themselves loincloths trying to cover up, one of Noah's sons, Ham, walks in on Noah in the tent, sees him naked. The passage reads, Ham, the father of Canaan. Look at that. Ham, the father of Canaan. That's not just, gee, I've got some extra space and a little extra ink in the pen. I think I'll throw it in there. That's going to become very important. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. There are some indications that that is a euphemism for Ham actually having some type of sexual activity with his father and his drunkenness. Um, there's good reason to think that, but I can't, I can't say it with any certainty. But it's, it's possibly, I'm, I'm remiss if I don't tell you that that's a very real possible understanding of that euphemism. Saw the nakedness of his father, and then he goes... And instead of being ashamed and embarrassed, he goes out and starts tooting about it to his brothers. Then Shem and Japheth, his two brothers, they take a garment. They lay it on both their shoulders and they walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Careful not to see. Their faces were turned backwards. They didn't see their father's nakedness. They seek to clothe the father. And you've got this huge echo 
coming out of the Garden of Eden where we have learned about the nakedness and God's efforts to clothe and even Adam and Eve's efforts to clothe. And Ham is the father of Canaan is just um, way out of line. So what happens? Well, here it is. In the Old Testament, uh, Genesis account, God curses the serpent. He curses the woman and he curses the man. And along with those curses are also pronouncements of, of at least blessings within the seed of woman. So it's curses and blessings. But here, Noah prophesies curses and blessings over Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those three instead of these three. But the curse is on Ham's offspring. The Canaanites. The Canaanites are who Israel is going to displace when Moses and Joshua get them into the promised land. And the Canaanites are the son of Ham who have no regard for God, no regard for holiness, and who are appropriately going to be exiled and driven out of their land. Noah says, cursed be Canaan. That's the son of Ham. Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. The way that's written, that promise that through the seed of woman, the the corollary promise, through the seed of woman would come the, the one who would bruise Satan, destroy Satan, excuse me, is now being narrowed down. Now it's going to be from Shem. This is from Yahweh, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. Now, the Japheth genealogy sets those people in basically... Russia, the Slavic nations, the Europeans. These are the Gentiles. These are the Goyim. These are the, the nations. Canaan carries the curse to be the servant, but for the nations, the non-Jews, the Jews come from Shem. He will ultimately, his offspring is going to be Abram, who becomes Abraham. Progenitor of the Jewish people. The nations, the rest of us, will get to dwell in the tents of Shem. The Messiah will bring the nations in. Through Shem. We will come in to the presence of God and the scriptures of Judaism. Paul says we're grafted onto the tree. In Romans. But this is the blessing that it's going to come in. But Canaan, the son of Ham, carries the curse that the Canaanites bore. Now that does not mean that the Canaanites are not also going to be in the kingdom. 
Jesus, the Messiah, talks and deals and loves on the Canaanite woman. But he's also the Messiah for all the nations. Go into all the nations, all the world, and preach the gospel. Because it's open for all. And so you've got here in this wonderful story, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. That's the storyline. So we can now say that part of this exile solution, the unfolding story of how we get the story of the Messiah, will go through Shem. But it's still going to be a story for everybody and everyone's coming in under the exile. Now, if we had time, we could go into more detail about a boatload of passages. We could easily do a semester on the exile. But instead, I want to give you just some flavorings for you to self-study if you want to go more. Or something to talk about over lunch, especially if you order cabrito. (laughs) You're eating goat. In Leviticus chapter 16, on the Day of Atonement, uh, the priests were taught, the high priest was taught to take two goats and put the sins of the people on the goats. And one of the goats is going to be sacrificed to satisfy God, to atone for sin. What happens to the other sin? It goes on the goat that gets driven out and exiled into the wilderness because that's the way of sin. Sin needs to be atoned for before God But sin also is driven out from the presence of God. And it should be driven out from the presence of his people. And the understanding of exile helps us better understand that scapegoat. It helps us better understand Psalm 103.12. Psalm 103.12 is is a, a passage that makes good sense in and of itself. But you read it in this context. You read it with these ideas. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He sends our transgressions into exile. As far away as possible. Put him on the goat, send the goat out away where he'll never be seen again. The nature of God is this way. This is why Isaiah 53, the story of the suffering servant, is profound in what it says about Jesus for this. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've gone out into exile. We've headed out. We've turned away. Everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The scapegoat would have the hands of the priest lay the iniquity of the people on the goat and he would be exiled. He would be sent out. If you're reading through the scripture and you want to read Ezekiel, Ezekiel is the prophet of the exile. Ezekiel's story is a story of exile. And it's got layer upon layer upon layer. There's a passage or a chapter in Ezekiel, chapter 11, where Ezekiel says God is leaving the temple. Of Jerusalem, God's just leaving. The people will be in exile in Babylon or in exile wherever they go. But the God who leaves will return and bring his people home. And that story is bound deeply in Ezekiel. If you read Jesus, you've got all of these echoes of Jesus speaking in exile terms. 
You have Jesus saying, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You've got Paul saying that Jesus left heaven. He was, in a sense, self-imposed exile from heaven. From God's presence, maybe is a more accurate way to say it. He existed in the form of God. He was in essence God, but did not regard that something he had to hold on to, so he emptied himself of that full divinity, taking the form of a human and being made in our likeness. There's an exile that's there. So if we look at these themes for exile and ask, how does it make a difference for us today? Go back to the goals I gave you at the start of class. One of the goals is to give purpose and meaning in life's storms. Because our storms can be periods of exile. You might even feel alienated from God. Which people in scripture do at times even though nothing could be further from real truth. In that God is always there ready for you. See God is present in the exile. Ezekiel has God packing up and leaving the temple because the Jews have to figure out how they can live without a temple, without the sacrifices, without the priests, without all of the ceremony and ritual of the day of atonement of each day's sacrifices. How are they going to live for 70 years in Babylon with none of that, with Jeremiah telling them, hey, just get yourself comfortable because you're going to be there for a while. And they want to kill Jeremiah for giving such a bad prophecy. But Ezekiel says, God packs up and God leaves. God's bringing you back. God will be with you in the exile. So we can join the psalmist in Psalm 40 who says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. By the way, another exile story, Joseph gets kicked out of his home, gets thrown in a pit. And is pulled out of the pit only to be sent to Egypt where he lives in exile. God heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet on a rock. He made my steps secure. If you're going through a period where you feel disassociated with life, disassociated with family, disassociated with purpose, disassociated with meaning, God is with you. And he's not only with you, he values you and he has something for your past and your future. See, God knows where you've been. God knows every mistake you've made. God knows every path you've taken. God knows every decision you've made that's right and every decision you've made that's wrong. God knows what you're trying to live with now because of what has happened before. God knows what's happened to you, even though you didn't deserve it. God knows every abuse you've had to tolerate and figure out how to live with. God knows, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. There is nothing in your life to this point that God's not fully aware of. And yet he promises you a future where he says, 
Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men, humanity. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as God. God's going to end every exile. The book starts with exile. And it ends with the exile will be over. And that is the substance of our faith and our hope. Our confidence in the Lord. All right, I want to bless you, but first let me give you a homework assignment. Dr. David Cave's teaching next Sunday. He is going to do in the book of Matthew what we've been doing in all of Scripture. So here's your assignment if you want to get ready. Read the book of Matthew with an idea of the theme of Emmanuel. That's what he's going to teach on. It's going to be dynamite. Uh, I'll be joining via the internet to watch. I hope you'll be here live and show him love and support. It's a great way to uh, uh, fellowship and love him. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessings on all who hear this message. That those who are lonely will sense your presence. That those without purpose will see your direction. That those who are longing for you will get more of you. That you will minister to us in exile. And instill in us that great faith that one day we are going home. That you will create a new earth new heaven and new earth and we will dwell with you eternally that we long for father through jesus our hope our prayer our confidence we pray amen